Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This is Brad Constantine, and now we're into Jacob, the book of Jacob, Jacob chapter 1. Now, Jacob is a younger brother to Nephi, and uh, he becomes the custodian of the plates here, <clears throat> at least the small ones. We're not sure who has the large ones. It's interesting that, uh, you know, why is it that Nephi does not give the plates to his oldest son? Um, it's possible that he didn't have sons, or it's possible that his son became king and therefore... Uh, there's a difference between who kept the large plates, which would have been the king, and the small plates would have been the prophet. Uh, we don't know for sure, but uh, at least Jacob has the small plates with him. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into this. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. For behold, it came to pass that 50 and 5 years, so this means that Jacob is somewhere between 47 and 55 years old, if this is when they left Jerusalem. Uh, we're not sure how, how, how soon after they left Jerusalem that Jacob and Joseph were born. But it was sometime between the time they left and eight years later, which is when they left uh, for the Americas. Uh, Fifty-five years had passed away from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. Wherefore, Nephi gave me, Jacob, a commandment concerning the small plates upon which these things are engraven. Um, and he gave me, Jacob, a commandment that I should write upon these plates a few of the things which I considered to be, of most, to be most precious that I should not touch, save it were lightly. In other words, only include a history to give a framework for the doctrine concerning the history of this people, which are called the people of Nephi. For he said that the history of his people should be engraven upon the, his other plates. And that's the plates that uh, upon which the 116 lost manuscript pages were. And that I should preserve these plates, meaning the small plates, and hand them down into my seed from generation to generation. So that means that Jacob is going to hand these down to his son Enos. Verse 4, And if there were preaching which was sacred, or revelation which was great, or prophesying, that I should engrave in the heads, or the dominant important parts, um, which is a Hebrew expression. Again, showing Joseph Smith translated this, this is not something that he would have made up. Uh, to engrave in the heads of them upon these plates, and touch upon them as much as it were possible for Christ's sake, and for the sake of our people. For because of faith and great anxiety, it truly has been made manifest unto us, concerning our people, what things should happen unto them. And now here's the purpose that Jacob is writing, verse 6, And we also had many revelations, and the spirit of much prophecy, wherefore we knew of Christ and his kingdom which should come. Wherefore we labored diligently among our people, that we might persuade them to come unto Christ, and partake of the goodness of God, that, we, that they might enter into his rest. And so he's trying to do what he can to persuade his people to, uh, to believe in Christ. To enter into the rest of the Lord in this life is to be possessed of the quiet but powerful assurance that the work in which we are engaged is true, that the Lord and Savior reigns, that he has restored his holy gospel through Joseph Smith in these latter days, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is in the line of its duty that it is led by true servants of the Lord, and that the God of heaven has appropriately empowered his oracles in this day to represent him. It is to know the peace of spiritual certainty, and thus be, be immune to the taunting waves of ridicule and skepticism, 
and that's in Gospel Doctrine by Joseph Fielding Smith. <clears throat> what he means by that is that to be to be at rest means that we we know where the truth is. We're not still looking. We're not wander, wandering around to and fro to find the truth. We already know where it is. <clears throat> Continuing verse seven, lest by any means he should swear in his wrath that they should not enter in, as in the provocation in the days of temptation, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. So he's talking here about what happened to the Israelites. At Sinai, the children of Israel spurned the privileges of the everlasting gospel and the greater priesthood and thereby rejected the higher counsel, which might have been had from the lips of Jehovah through Moses, the lawgiver. They provoked their Lord and robbed themselves of the sublime association with that holy being who was the God of the covenant fathers. And so they had to, they had to wait the 40 years in the wilderness before they could go into the promised land. And that was the provocation that, that they had done. Uh, verse 8, wherefore we would to God that we would persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ. To believe in Christ is more than an intellectual admission that he exists, more than recognition of his historical reality. It is to acknowledge his divine sonship, to know by the witness of the Spirit that he is God's almighty Son, and that salvation is to be found in and through his holy name, and in no other way. Continuing verse 8, and view his death and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. To suffer the cross of Christ is to be willing to bear the burdens of Christian discipleship, particularly of crucifying the old man of sin and putting on Christ. If any man will come after me, Jesus taught his Meridian 12, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And now for a man to take up his cross is to deny himself all ungodliness and every worldly lust and keep my commandments. <clears throat> that was from the Doctrinal Commentary of the Book of Mormon. Uh, also, an unerring me measure of our conversion to Christ and his gospel is found in that which we do. The testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, is far more than feeling and sentiment. It is a witness that impels one to righteous action. Concluding verse 8, Wherefore I, Jacob, take it upon me to fulfill the commandment of my brother Nephi. Now Nephi began to be old, and he saw that he must soon die, wherefore he anointed a man to be a king and a ruler over his people. Now, according to the reigns of the kings, we don't know who that is. If that was his firstborn son or his oldest son or whatever, we don't know who that is that he's, he's uh, or, or, uh, anointing as king. Uh, the anointing, a symbol of the outpouring of the spirit was a sacramental charge, one in which the king effectually covenanted to lead his people in righteousness, prophets, priests, and kings, all of which were anointed, thus became messianic testimonies of the king of kings. Since it doesn't state that he anointed one of his sons to be king, as previously stated, it is probable that he had no sons but only daughters. And again, I don't know that for sure. That's just speculation on my part. Uh, the monarchy uh, would last about 500 years, and it wouldn't be until Mosiah comes along that things get changed. Verse 10, the people having loved Nephi exceedingly, <clears throat> he having been a great protector for them, having wielded the sword of Laban in their defense. Uh, it's interesting that the kings then would be the ones to have the sword of Laban, which was symbolic of the kingship. <clears throat> the symbolism associated with the sword of Laban reaches to our day. The three witnesses of the Book of Mormon were promised that they would see the sword of Laban, as well as the gold plates, the breastplate, and the Urim and Thummim. An incident recounted by Brigham Young affirms that the protective hand of the Lord remains extended in behalf of his people and over his sacred records. Brigham Young tells us that Oliver Cowdery accompanied Joseph Smith when the latter returned the plates to the Hill Cumorah. They laid the plates on a table. 
It was a large table that stood in the room. This was within the Hill Cumorah. Under this table, there was a pile of plates as much as two feet high. And there were altogether in this room more plates than probably many wagon loads. They were piled up in the corners and along the walls. The first time they went into the, they went in, there, there the sword of Laban hung upon the wall. But when they went again, it had been taken down and laid upon the table across the gold plates. It was unsheathed, and on it was written these words, This sword will never be sheathed again until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. And so that was from uh, the Journal of Discourses. Um, this indicates that there may, be, may have already been some wars between the Nephites and Lamanites. This must have been recorded on the large plates of Nephi, uh, but not on the small plates. Continuing verse 10, And having labored in all his days for their welfare, wherefore the people were desirous to retain in remembrance his name. And whoso should reign in his stead were called by the people second Nephi, third Nephi, and so forth, according to the reigns of the kings. And thus they were called by the people, let them be of whatever name they would. So here's where they're naming their kings uh, after Nephi. And it came to pass that Nephi died. He's probably a little over 70 years old or so. Now the people which were not Lamanites were Nephites. Nevertheless, they were called Nephites. And Sam is included with Nephi. Uh, notice the number here of uh, different tribes that are mentioned here. Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites. There's seven that are mentioned. And we know from a Hebrew standpoint that seven means complete. So again, uh, I wonder if they left off on purpose Sam so that they would have seven to be Hebrew in, or in orientation. Don't know. Anyway, interesting. In general, the terms Nephites and Lamanites are used with the same meaning for the first 500 years of Nephite history. The term Nephites refers to all those who followed after Nephi and to their descendants. The term Lamanites refers to those who followed after Laman and to their descendants. However, it is mentioned later in the Book of Mormon that there were no ites of any kind during the 200-year golden age immediately after the appearance of the resurrected Jesus Christ. After this 200-year period of righteousness, the terms Lamanites and Nephites are used again, but with somewhat different meanings than those used earlier in the Book of Mormon. In AD 231, there arose a people who were called the Nephites, and they were true believers in Christ. Therefore, the true believers in Christ and the true worshipers of Christ were called Nephites. And it came to pass that they who rejected the gospel were called Lamanites. The terms Nephites and Lamanites for the remainder of the Book of Mormon are determined by this division, which had taken place by AD 231. In other words, the Lamanites of the last 200 years of Book of Mormon history are descendants of those who revolted against the true Church of Christ between about A.D. 194 and 231. That's from Daniel Ludlow. So that means that the Lamanites included Nephites and the Nephites included Lamanites. 14. But I, Jacob, shall not hereafter distinguish them by these names, but I shall call them Lamanites that seek to destroy the people of Nephi. And those who are friendly to Nephi, I shall call Nephites or the people of Nephi, according to the reigns of the kings. And now it came to pass that the people of Nephi, under the reign of the second king, began to grow hard in their hearts and indulged themselves somewhat in wicked practices, such as like unto David of old, desiring many wives and concubines, and also Solomon his son. Two serious problems are, are coming here, immorality and pride, materialistic, unspiritual. These are the sins of our generation, said Presidents Kimball and Benson. 16. Yea, and they also began to search much gold and silver, and began to be lifted up somewhat in pride. Wherefore I, Jacob, gave unto them these words, as I taught them in the temple. 
having first obtained mine errand from the Lord. There are those who claim authority from some secret ordinations of the past, said Elder Packer. Um, and this is talking about uh, those that have been ordained and set apart, that we will always know uh, in the church who's supposed to lead us, that there will not be any secret uh, ordinations or those that are set apart secretly to do things, which uh, is, is beginning to happen among the church, uh, those that are apostatizing from the church. Elder Packer says, even now, some claim special revealed authority to lead or to teach the people. Occasionally, they use the names of members of the First Presidency or of the Twelve or of the Seventy and imply some special approval of what they teach. There have been too many names presented, too many sustaining votes taken, too many ordinations and settings apart performed before too many witnesses. There have been too many records kept, too many certificates prepared, and too many pictures published in too many places for anyone to be deceived as to who holds proper authority. Claims of special revelation or secret authority from the Lord or from the brethren are false on the face of them and really utter nonsense. The Lord never operates that way. These things are not done in a corner. There is a light on every official call and every authorized ordination, and it has always been that way. Okay. Um, the following are just my opinions about the sustaining of the Savior prior to the second coming. Now, we talked about here um, about people being sustained uh, and that everyone will know about it. My opinion is that when the Savior appears at Adam on Diamond, we will go through the same thing that all who receive authority do. We, he will be presented and sustained by those present, by those who have held priesthood keys anciently, as well as all the righteous saints uh, that will be there at the meeting at Adam on Diamond. He will be sustained as president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as King of King of the Kingdom of God on Earth, as Lord of Lords. Then he will rightly take his place at the head of the kingdom to rule and reign over the entire earth through the millennium. Again, that's just my opinion. Uh, I think uh, I think that's what's going to happen. That the meeting, the sacrament meeting that we have at Adam on Diamond will be a sustaining vote of the Savior as the as the King of Kings over the whole earth. Verse 18: For I, Jacob, and my brother Joseph had been consecrated priests and teachers of this people by the by the hand of Nephi. Joseph Fielding Smith, and we know about the ordinations here, the priests and teachers, that these are not Aaronic priesthood assignments. Joseph Fielding Smith said the Nephites did not officiate under the authority of the Aaronic priesthood. They were not descendants of Aaron, and there were no Levites among them. I think I may have said this in a previous uh, lesson, but it's worth repeating just because I want to. <clears throat> and there were no Levites among them. There is no evidence in the Book of Mormon that they held the Aaronic priesthood, but the Book of Mormon tells us definitely in many places that the priesthood which they held and under which they officiated was the priesthood after the holy order of, of the Son of God. This higher priesthood can officiate in every ordinance of the gospel, and Jacob and Joseph, for instance, were consecrated priests and teachers after this order. These callings are descriptive of their labors in the Melchizedek priesthood rather than offices in the Aaronic priesthood as we know them. So far as we know, there was no Aaronic priesthood among the Nephites until possibly the coming of Christ to America. Now, the last sentence there, last couple sentences, was from Bruce R. McConkie. Verse 19, and we did magnify our office unto the Lord, and here's how to magnify your calling, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence, wherefore by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments, otherwise their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. President John Taylor said on one occasion, speaking to the brethren of the priesthood, if you do not magnify your callings, God will hold you responsible for those you might have saved had you done your duty. 
This is a challenging statement. If I, by reason of sins of commission or omission, lose what I might have had in the hereafter, I myself must suffer and doubtless my loved ones with me. But if I fail in my assignment as a bishop, a stake president, a mission president, or one of the general authorities of the church, if any of us fail to teach, lead, direct, and help to save those under our direction and within our jurisdiction, then the Lord will hold us responsible if they are lost as the result of our failure. And that last statement was from Hubie Brown in General Conference. I bear testimony of the truth of these things, that we need to magnify our callings uh, that were given and do the best that we can and say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you like this podcast, share it and like it and whatever. See you next time.